you freaking auto? This, this is Brock and Saul. Brock Heward and Mark, Matt, Marcus. Sorry about just Mike. Mike. Presented by Carter, Volkswagen, and Ballard. On Seattle Sports. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Where's like the buff dudes at? Now here are your hosts, Brock Heward and Mike Saul. <laughs> All right, let's go. It is the Brock and Salk Show, Seattle Sports on 710, seattlesports.com, and the Seattle Sports app, not to mention all the podcast platforms out there. Oh, yeah, we're on all of them. I'm uh, I'm not in the studio today. I'm on location, Maura. Did you, you miss are. me? No, I'm on location. <laughs> I'm down at the Virginia Mason Athletic Center, the Seahawks facility. A rare time down here for us. Usually we don't come down because, you know, we sit outside. Well, practice doesn't start until 1 o'clock. But today, the coach is going to come on with us. Pete Carroll joins us at 9.30. So down here, like a like a regular Monday during the season, to talk to the coach at 9.30, which is, of course, something we'll be doing all throughout this season, as always. And uh, looking forward to catching up with Pete about his team and what he's seen so far and all of that. So that'll be kind of fun. Tomorrow, by the way... The uh, restart of the KJ Wright show. Are we prepared for that? Oh, I think people have been prepared for that for a while. Well, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> KJ will be back with us. I hope year two is as successful as year one and that everybody continues to adore KJ the way they did last year. I have no doubt that that will be the case. But KJ Wright show starts tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Pete Carroll on the show today at 930. Maybe you're starting to sense a little theme as we are getting closer and closer to the start of football season. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, we got to talk about what I think may be – is that the best loss of the season? Ugh. I mean, it was obviously yeah. frustrating. Nobody question. wants to lose. But is that the best loss of the season? You do nothing for seven-plus innings. What, seven and two-thirds? The Mariners held without a hit. They had just one walk. They looked like they were completely, completely fooled by a Kansas City pitcher who, yes, has good stuff and is a former first-round pick but also had an ERA over six, right? I mean, they, they looked yeah. completely baffled. Well, and they were a little sloppy. I texted you, like, uh, or emailed you guys, like, this, yeah. they look kind of lifeless, and then they really turned it around. Well, and then all of a sudden, right? I mean, they don't give up. They do what you need them to do, and they score four in the eighth, and Julio does his thing, and they come back and get two more in the ninth, and the next thing you know, they've come roaring back from 5 nothing down and do it after being no hit, they're in position to win the game. The offense did essentially what you would want it to do. It scores six runs in a game. Yes, it waited a little late to do it, but they score six runs in a game. And then, unfortunately, Matt Brash comes in, can't hold it, gives up two. And there's a, a lot of question marks to be asked. This is now three games in a row where the last inning of relief has been problematic. Right? You got Munoz in the 10th. You got Munoz again in the 9th. And then uh, yesterday, of course, you had um, you had Matt Brash struggling in the ninth inning. So clearly you've got what appears to be a ninth inning problem right now, and we can talk through what that looks like. The other thing you've got, though, is what I, what I perceive as just an organizational view that I don't agree with, and that is this whatever refusal you want to call it, refusal to walk guys to set up a double play with one out and a man on third in a key spot. I just don't get it. I mean, I guess you could make some arguments the other night that, you know, you were at home 
right, against Baltimore, and so you didn't want to put more runners on base and let the game get away from you because you still were going to get your last ups? Okay, I can buy it. I don't agree with it, but at least I can see the logic. Can someone help me understand why last night with a man on third, nobody out in a tie game, you don't want to set up a double play? What am I missing? Guy ends up bunting him in, which was a great play by him. And no, I don't think Dylan Moore screwed it up at first base. I think that he could not have gotten the runner at home anyway, even if he'd filled it cleanly. I think it was just a good play. It was a good bunt, and you got a fast runner on third. Why are you even messing around with that possibility? Another run isn't going to hurt you. If the runner from third scores, you're you're done either way. And I can understand if you don't want to load up the bases because you don't trust Brash to throw strikes, but you got to give him an opportunity to get a double play ball, don't you? I, I just I don't get it. And all three times it has come back to hurt them twice on Sunday and again yesterday. So yeah, that is a decision that I'll consistently disagree with. You know how much I think of Scott Service, and ultimately I'll take what Scott did yesterday. Right, He kept his team, and he keeps the environment where his team doesn't quit. They don't. Right? They don't quit. That's what I want out of my manager. Well, and you were saying you know, the opposite earlier this year. You were like, this team has like a give-up factor. They did. And so good this is on, what you want to see this time of year. Absolutely, and good on Scott because I think he has done an excellent job of keeping this team kind of focused and getting through some of those rough patches, and he's got them playing with confidence again. The offense, good on them. But I, I just I don't I don't agree with this strategy, and I don't know if that comes from Scott, if it comes from above. We'll talk to Jerry about it, I'm sure, on Thursday because I'm definitely curious about it. I just I don't get it, and I think once again it killed them uh, yesterday. I also don't think Matt Brash is your ninth inning guy. I don't see Matt Brash the closer. Never have. Don't want to. The moment they traded Paul Seawald, I was afraid that this was the direction they would go. And yeah, I, Scott's going to get some grace from me. When it comes to managing a bullpen, because I think he's done an incredible job of it the last, whatever it is, five years, seven years. But I don't think Matt Brash is a closer. I would like to see Matt Brash come in in the same situation he's been in all year long. Sixth, seventh inning, even eighth inning, traffic already on base, and you need strikeouts. I think it's perfect for him. He doesn't seem to feel responsible for the players or the runners that are on base. He can come in and be that fireman who gets you out of trouble. I love him in that role. As a closer, I I don't know that that's who he is. Who do you trust right now? Uh, The moment, first of all, I don't think they need a closer. I would go back to doing it the way you did a few years ago, where each player knows who, which pocket they're going to be attacking in any given game. I thought that was the best way to do it. And without Seawald, I don't think you need one guy to be a closer. But if you need somebody to pitch a clean ninth inning, my guy would be Justin Topa. I think he's got the stuff. He seems to have the personality for it. If Scott were here, maybe he would tell me, hey, Mike, you only believe that because we've protected him over the course of the year and you've seen him only. Maybe that's true. But when I watch him, I see the stuff and I see a fairly calm demeanor. I see some pretty good command and control, so I'm not as worried about the walks. That's the guy that I would probably be looking at to to be my ninth inning guy. Now, I know he'd already pitched last night, so that wasn't an option. But that's um, 
that's probably the direction that I would go. But I, I, I may be a little too high on Justin Topa. Like, I admit that. I just – I don't see that's Brash. Huh? <laughs> so that's your guy? Uh, He's my guy right now. You know why? You know who he reminds me of? Paul Seawald. Oh, yeah? He reminds me a lot. Not exactly the same stuff. And obviously, you know, he doesn't throw from the same angle or any of that. I, I'm not saying stuff-wise they're similar. But their presence on the mound I find to be fairly similar, and I think they have equivalent stuff in terms of what they're capable of throwing. I might argue Topa's got better stuff than than, than Seawall does. Yeah, so, I'm looking at his page right now, and his last uh, last 15 games, which is 12, a little over 12 innings, he yep. has allowed one earned run. Yeah. Dude, he's really good. I, I really I, – I like Topa a lot. Is Munoz generally the closer? Yeah, I mean, maybe, except he'd just blown a couple in a row – so now you're going to Brash and you're going to give him a shot, which I just, I don't think that's who he is. And I love Matt Brash, by the way. That's not a shot at Brash. I love the kid. Love his personality. Love the stuff. I think it plays better into his style when you're bringing him in in a different situation rather than a clean inning in the ninth. So, anyway, it, it's a frustrating game, clearly. The moment they scored, I go, you know, my family was jumping up and down. Everybody was excited. And I just, I will admit I had a bad feeling. Like, yeah, this game's not over yet. They're going to have to get through the bottom of the ninth. And it just had one of those crazy seesaw. I can't tell you why I felt it last night, but I did. I just kind of felt like that game was not over yet and wasn't going to be over until it really was. And sure enough, you know, they got some dudes over there. When you got to face that part of the order with Witt Jr., who is absolutely a dude, and then knowing that eventually you're going to have to deal with Salvador Perez and all the times that he's beaten the Mariners – yeah, it wasn't going to be over. And uh, unfortunately, Brash didn't have his best stuff last night, and uh, that was all she wrote. So that's where the Mariners were. I, I, I think that there's a lot of positives to take out of that game. And for everybody frustrated about the Seawald trade today, I understand it. I'd point out that maybe you don't get to that spot if you don't get the hit that you do from uh, from Rojas in the ninth inning. But, yeah, I get it. It appears like all of a sudden the Mariners, whose bullpen has really been their strength over the last three years, all of a sudden they may have a little issue in the ninth inning as they're an arm short. All right, we'll come right back, give you everything you need to know, um, including the Huskies getting some really nice press yesterday. We'll explain why. Coming up. Need to know. 15 minutes past every hour with Brock and Salk. Here's what you need to know. Up first. Well, there is no quit in these Mariners. None at all. They didn't quit on this season, and they sure didn't quit last night. And I think they get a little credit for that. No hit through seven and two-thirds innings. Pitcher, Logan Gilbert, with a rare off night. He was definitely not his best. They give up an inside-the-park home run. Kind of an iffy defensive play. They trail 5-0 in the eighth inning. And then they went to work, four in the fourth, uh, in the eighth, rather, excuse me. Julio had the big blow, a three-run double to clear the bases. They get two more in the ninth to take the lead, and once again, it was Julio. Here's the stretch and the 1-0 to Julio. Swing and a hard hit ground ball into left field for a base hit. Here comes Haggerty on the score. The Mariners have the lead. Six to five here in the top of the ninth inning. Julio Rodriguez with an RBI single. His fourth RBI of the night. It's the Mariners six and the Royals five. Yeah, I think everybody in Seattle feeling pretty good at that point. They had come back. Julio was pumped up. 
chance to get maybe another run in. They don't. They strand the bases loaded, and uh, it wasn't enough. Matt Brash gives up two in the ninth for the blown save. The game ends on a bunt play where they were unable to get a runner at home, and the next thing you know, the Mariners have lost three games in a row, all of which the bullpen has let them down late in the game. So three straight losses after winning eight straight games. Texas wins, Houston loses, Toronto didn't play, so you can kind of do the math on that. After the game, Scott Service, I'm sure frustrated, but at the same time, proud of how his guys battled. We play so many games, and I appreciate the question, uh, but you're going to have games. You know, I, I'm super proud of our guys. We just find a way to grind and fight back into the game, and knowing, uh, you know, they, they bring out their closer in the eighth inning, and we're, we're all over them. Um, so... We'll come out tomorrow. Um, we're going to get our offense going a bit earlier in the game. But, again, you got to give credit to Singer. He threw the ball really well. So, yeah, I, I tend to agree with that take on it. Yes, it's frustrating to lose any game, and certainly three in a row kind of makes it feel like you're taking a step backwards. you got three more against Kansas City. They're going to continue to have bullpen problems, and we'll see if the Mariners can get themselves moving in the right direction again. Brian Wu, some good news, playing catch yesterday on the field in Kansas City. Apparently all went well. He should throw a bullpen soon, and if that goes well, then he would return to the rotation right when he is eligible to August 20th, so just about a week away. Here's the second thing you need to know. All right, how good are the Seahawks going to be? I don't know, and I don't think anyone's going to know for at least a few more weeks until we see them in actual game, regular season action, but I'll tell you what. The reaction from the national folks who visited camp has just been overwhelmingly positive, right? We talked to Albert Breer last week. He was raving about the energy here. Mark Schlereth, who was in studio last week, once again, raving about the energy at camp. And I would say that both of them are fairly easy to impress. But former wide receiver Steve Smith, that's not a guy that I tend to think of as being Pollyanna. He sure liked what he saw. First of all, Geno Smith dropping a dime. To, to Swole Bones himself, uh, DK Metcalf in the back of the end zone, setting them up real good. And then, zoom, here comes the Blue Angel. <laughs> so they start practice, and they got a DJ. He's playing all, all types of music. And then he's talking, introducing, and saying, hey, this is what we expect. And then they had this team pump-up section. And the offense is all on this side, on one side, defense on this side. But the coaches are, like, going around the guys as they're in drills. I'm not trying to be cheesy, bro, but it was very refreshing to see almost like a college-like atmosphere with the excitement, the fanfare for the fans. It just made you, like, you get good, man, I'm not doing this. But then you start, it's like, it's contagious. Yeah, see, he's exactly the type of person that I find interesting when you're talking about Pete, because I think he is a little jaded. I think he is, you know, like me. I relate to Steve Smith a little bit. I'll just say that. But when you hear him see it and, and feel it and come away going, oh, my God. And then you just get that perspective of a guy who's been in a bunch of different camps himself, not to mention what he's seen now as a member of the media. For him to come away and have that reaction, I think is pretty telling. I think there's a good energy out here. Always there's a good energy. But especially this year with a team that I, I think is going to be a little bit better than some of the national folks who haven't made their way up here. Are, uh, are, are realizing they're going to be. So getting pretty excited. Pete Carroll will join us this morning at 9.30. Here's the third thing you need to know. Well, unfortunately, just horrible news yesterday. We found out former Seahawks running back Alex Collins passed away at the age of 28, a late-round draft pick, fifth-round pick. 
here in Seattle out of Arkansas 2016. He went on to score. He went on to some really nice seasons in Baltimore, including a year where he nearly got to 1,000 yards. Then he came back here and played a couple more seasons in 20 and 21. Uh, on a personal note, I always just loved him. I loved watching him. I enjoyed him when he was at Arkansas. I was excited when they had drafted him. And then I really enjoyed talking to him. He was a guy who always had a smile, was willing to kind of listen and engage in a question, a fun interview, and just one of my personal favorites. So, unfortunately, uh, he was in a motorcycle accident. Sounds like a woman may have veered into his lane in a car, and uh, unfortunately, he did not survive that ordeal. So, uh, really, really sad, and obviously our condolences to the Seahawks, the Ravens, and to the Collins family. Uh, I'll end on a more positive note here locally. It's nice to see the Huskies getting a little pre season respect after just the horrific offseason for well them but really the entire conference they start the year ranked number 10 in the initial ap poll that would be second to in the pac-12 how about that congratulations to the huskies and we'll see if they can deal with some of that pressure which is always a challenge in the modern game this year that is everything you need to know and we do that quarter pass to every hour here on the brock and salk show how about that yeah, I was really sad. I know that you were um, just a huge fan of him in camp, but I, yeah. was, I was really sad. I think Alex Collins was a fan favorite with the, the river dance and everything that uh, he was known for, too. Just kind of a, a, a person that seemed to have like an infectious joy about him. Yeah, he's a really good dude. Um, and I remember watching him at uh, at Arkansas. He played... With some of that, you know, some of that style that I think we loved here in Seattle with Marshawn Lynch. And I'm not telling you he was Marshawn. He was smaller, et cetera. But he had some of that, especially in college, where he would just run at people, run over people, bounce off people. And, and the other thing I always felt like he had in common with Marshawn was sort of a, an erratic style of running. And, and I say that as a compliment. Sure. You just never knew which direction he was going to go. Brock always used to call Marshawn a gyro ball, and I totally agree with that. Like, he was just constantly bouncing and moving in directions that you wouldn't expect a running back to move in, and it seemed to always take opponents by surprise. I saw a lot of that in Alex Collins. I never thought that he got a fair shake at his first run here because he just wasn't good at some of the stuff they wanted him to do. I mean, they were constantly using him in that read option with Russ and I don't think he accelerated quickly out of that in order to make it a, a, a positive experience for him and show off his best side. He goes to Baltimore where they had a little bit better offensive line. They start handing him the ball running downhill. And I thought you got to see a little bit more of the, the better side of Alex Collins. And yeah, true enough. He nearly ran for a thousand yards and the year he did. If I remember the Seahawks kind of didn't have anybody running the ball. They had a tough year that year with some injuries. So yeah, it was uh, it was a bummer, and um, and and obviously finding out yesterday that he had passed away was shocking. I mean, I, I I was just sitting at home yesterday afternoon. I saw the news and and gave an audible, oh no! And my family came running over, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And telling them about Alex Collins and how I always really liked the guy. So just a bummer, and uh, certainly our condolences to uh, to everybody around who knew him. All right, uh, let's see. Coming up, speaking of that, we uh, spent quite a bit of the day, excuse me, yesterday, uh, raising some money via an auction for the folks that have been impacted by the fires in Lahaina on Maui. I uh, want to say thank you again. We raised $11,000 uh, to the high bidder in our auction, which is just great, and that's going to go towards our uh, big company relief effort, which right now 
now is over $200,000 that we've raised as a company, and I don't think that includes the $11,000 we'll bring in yesterday. So that is just really, really awesome and uh, you know, just devastating, the situation there on Maui. Uh, we spoke to Max Unger about it and other things yesterday. Max, of course, one of the fan favorites here is a longtime center for the LOB Seahawks, but also a guy from that area, well, at least from the Big Island, who makes his home there now as well. And we talked to Max about football and Maui. You'll hear it next. This this is Brock and Salk. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Back in mornings from 6 to 10. On Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. As we try to raise money today for uh, what's gone on in Lahaina, specifically Maui in general and, and the Hawaiian Islands, a perfect person for us to talk to, Brock, both about football and also about uh, the magical beauty of that area of the world. Former Seahawks center Max Unger, who we've not talked to in forever. Max, thanks for being with us. How are you? What's up, guys? It's been a while. It has been, but it's good to hear your voice. Where are you? The so I uh, I live on the Big Island now. I uh, I moved home um, right after I retired, uh, kind of where I grew up. And so uh, yeah, we've been here for uh, four years so far. Oh, cool. Well, I definitely want to talk to you about football and your life and stuff. But let's start with uh, with Maui and with Lahaina and what's happened over the course of the last week or so. What, you know, how well do you know that part of uh, Hawaii? How well do you know that area? And and just your thoughts on seeing the devastation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's hard to read the articles and like follow it kind of blow by blow as uh, stuff gets um, like more and more information comes out just because it's just so unthinkable, right? Um, I know that area pretty well. Um, I, have, I haven't spent a lot of time there, but, you know, I know a handful of people who either have houses there, live there, or, you know, I've played with. Um, and uh, it, it's pretty hard to wrap your mind around, um, you know, just, you know, be, spending a little bit of time there and driving through there, realizing that it's, it's you know, for the most part, completely gone. Uh, just, it doesn't compute with me. Um, you know, I've seen the pictures, I've heard the stories and, uh, it's, it's just, it's, you know, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really have the, uh, the words to describe the, uh, I guess the sadness that's kind of over the state right now. So you go from Hawaii to Eugene to Seattle to new Orleans and back to the islands. Why did the islands draw you home? Oh man, this is home. Um, so we've been here, you know, for, for a while, you know, both sides of my family are, are from the big Island. Um, most of my aunts and uncles, you know, all live out here. And so it's, uh, I don't know, it's the best place to raise kids. I mean, all my friends and, and family live out here. So, uh, it's, uh, it's just kind of my community. Um, and, uh, there really wasn't even a question. I, we looked around for a little bit, um, as to where, you know, I wanted to live, live, you know, after we we're done playing football and it, it wasn't even really a hard choice. So it's, uh, it's, it's been awesome, man. I have my kids in school here and, and we just kind of live our lives. Max Unger here with us, man. It's so great to hear your voice. I shot you a text yesterday. It was actually the great Matt Stretch Johnson that helped me reconnect with you because Matt filled yeah. in on this show a couple weeks ago, Max, and you wouldn't believe it. He ranked his top five Seahawks and you, my friend, were number one on his list. He just absolutely. That's, that's, that's my guy, though. That's, that's <laughs> cheating. He can't. He can't. <laughs> well, I knew where to go to, man. I, I've learned, you know, you got to get to the right sources and I knew where to get to. And you know this, too, having played, as you said it, or I, I said to you at, at Oregon and, and on the West Coast. I know, Max, I think of so many of my Hawaiian teammates through the years, right? In, at the University of Washington, especially, we recruited uh, the islands big time. And, man, there was so much pride 
everybody's got pride where they come from. Salk's proud of the Northeast like Mora, and Justin's proud of Libby, Montana. I'm proud of Puyallup. But there's just something different about the pride, the Hawaiian pride that teammates had coming from there. Can you try to express, I mean, you've done it wonderfully. Can you just take one more, one more swing at it as to why there is so much island pride? Yeah, I think it's just like the, honestly, it's like the isolation that you have out here. I mean, there's just like geographically, there's, you know, the, however many miles, you know, from here to the West Coast or, you know, here to anywhere else. It's just, uh, it's a really isolated place. And so I think, you know, there's there's just like a lot of reliance on uh, your neighbors. Like you can't, there's there's not a, usually not a store that you can go get exactly what you need um, there. And, I, and, and the, there's just like a level of, I don't know, community that you have to have um, just when you're, when there's, there's, there's not the resources that are normally available uh, to you at bigger, bigger cities and places. And for me, I think that that really kind of resonates when you leave here. I think it creates a certain type of person and um, it, it's kind of reflected, I guess, with your teammates that you saw, um, you know, you dub and, and the guys that you played with that have come from from Hawaii and um, I don't know it, it you know all the guys I played with my teammates like from the state here I mean they're all it is a certain type of guy and um, and it's it's awesome man it's like it, it's a calling card you know I've heard that from other coaches before so what's well, interesting well one of the challenges with that isolation that you mentioned Max is is now when you have a, a, a huge problem and a huge need traumatic event and now the need to get people there becomes more and more difficult to do it which is why you know I think it's it's so important and why we're trying to raise money uh, through the station and through all of our, our company here at Bonneville it's Max let's uh, let's talk a little football since we have you and we're gonna do quite a bit of that today Think back on your time here and, and with the offensive line that you had. When it was at its best, what was this offensive line like? Oh, man. Good good question. No, I mean, you know, these are these are my guys, right? I mean, you know, we, we still keep in touch. I mean, uh, the, the stretch we had there, um, it was incredible, and it was it was some of, the, some of my best memories. The, 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 the question was – sorry, repeat the, the end of the question. What was the what offensive was the line what was like? like the, yeah, what were you guys like at your best? Yeah, you know, I guess I could sum that up, man. I mean, my, like, marker for offensive lines is, like, how they cover down the field, right, and how they push the pile when the running back gets stood up and he's not down, right? And I thought that we did a good, like, as far as O-lines I've played with, we did it as good as any as I've ever seen, right? Because, you know, if the expectation is, you know, full – you know, the expectation in the NFL is full exertion at all times and no MAs, right? And so what's like the next level to that? And to me, it was always that for, for playing O-line, right? Pushing the pile and covering downfield when the ball's thrown. And I think that we were able to do that to a very, very high level, right? And uh, that honestly is my biggest takeaway. Do you still chuckle? I know you're on the big island, and, and I don't know what time it is with kickoff and anything else, but if you do tune into a Seahawks game, do you still chuckle at the guy running up and down the sidelines with his 1970 sneakers, right, 72 this fall, but still 14 years here, Max, and still doing it the same way, still preaching that the physical air, The presence. Air Monarchs? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's still rocking. Well, he's got them big bunions, yeah, so man. he's got to wear the Monarchs, you know, to handle all that. But he's, he's right. still doing wind sprints at practice. He's still doing gassers. He's still all involved. But when you watch this team, do you still get a little smirk on your face going, man, they are building it the same way they built it back in 2010 when you were there? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's the truth though. Uh, Pete's still out there chewing about seven packs of Bubblicious and, uh, sprinting up and down the sidelines, man. That's pretty cool. I didn't know he was 70. He's, you said 72. 
Almost. 72 this fall. Yeah. Yep. Wow. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's awesome, man. I mean, it, it, it seems like they're, they're still doing this. They're still doing their same thing out there, man. I mean, yep. I haven't, I haven't watched a ton of, um, you know, the Seahawks games these last couple of years, but just from reading the headlines, I mean, it seems like they're doing the same thing. I mean, they're highly competitive and, and doing the same deal. I mean, that Pete's going to have a team ready to compete and that's just kind of been his MO for, like you said, 14 years. How about when the pendulum swung from Pete Carroll to Sean Payton? <laughs> And you get traded from everything on the West Coast down to New Orleans, Louisiana. What was that like? You know, it was actually, it, it worked out really well for me, like career-wise. Like, oh. you know, I didn't want to get traded. Obviously, I didn't want to get traded. You know, this, was, this wasn't like I requested it or something. I got, you know, I totally hit out of the blue. But um, as far as teams to get traded to, I mean, it was probably the best situation for me. Um, we had a great, you know, great coach. We had, obviously, Drew Brees down there. And we had just, like, a really good... I mean, organization that I, uh, that I got to go play with. Uh, but Sean and Pete, I mean, are pretty far apart on the old coaching spectrum. Uh, <laughs> that is true. Um, but, it, but, you know, it, it was good. I mean, the NFL is crazy business, right? I mean, like, regardless of where you are, you, you still have the same goals, you know, personally and, and for your team. And so you just kind of keep the, keep the train going. Yeah, it'll be uh, we, Sean Payton's about to become a relevant figure in Seattle. As as we now have two teams here, we have the Seattle Seahawks and the Broncos. We follow both uh, on like a daily basis. I can't really figure out why. It yeah. might, might have something uh, to do with the quarterback there, but yeah, we uh, we sort of have two teams to talk about now. Um, Hey, listen, I'm I'm right there with you, buddy. I'm I got a lot, there's a lot of crossover on that team for I think a lot of people at this point. So I understand what you're talking about. Last uh, last thing here, I won't I won't ask you to comment on that. We've gotten enough from everybody on those teams over the years to <laughs> sort of have a sense as to what the heck was really going I, on behind the scenes. I unless gotcha. there, unless there's something you'd gotcha. like to say, obviously we'll we'll leave the door no, open. No, 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 I'm good. Yeah, I I'm figured. Good. Yeah. Can I ask you though about something you did that had to be a unique experience in your life? What was it like okay. thinking back on it now? Blocking and being in a huddle with Marshawn. Blocking four and being in a huddle with Marshawn Lynch. Did you know? You know. You know that man well enough. This. This is like the, he's one of the greatest teammates of all time, right? I mean, I don't know. He is. He is the most unique person and greatest teammate I think I've I've ever played with. I mean, this this dude was just on a completely different level. I think not necessarily the huddle. I think it's like just the day to day interactions. You never know. You just had no idea what was going to come out of this guy's mouth. Mm. I mean, <laughs> that's just a fact. But, um, you know, blocking for him, I mean, that whole team, I mean, to put together a roster, um, you know, to go win a Super Bowl, I mean, there has to be no weak spots, you know, that you have. And then to see, you know, the all-pro caliber, you know, that we got the block for, um, it's just, it was cool, man. It was a heck of a time. Uh, to play football for the Seahawks. Why, why was man? he I such mean, a great I, teammate? What What is it about Marshawn that made him such a great teammate? He was friends with everybody. You know, he could relate. He could sit down at any corner of the locker room and have, you know, a genuine conversation with anybody at any time about anything. And it was it was real, right? Um, and Marshawn's also a genius, right? You guys know this. He has, like, the whole world fooled. And with, like, you know, him not talking to the meat and the press and stuff for a while, he kind of – it was like a business model for him. I mean, he was like a he was like a genius just, like, socially. And, and he had, like, this – you know, this personality that he built um, that was just – that was him. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. But yeah, it does. That's how, that's how I saw it. 
Makes a ton of sense. My last thing here for you, Max, you won a Super Bowl with a team that ran it first. It's just kind of that mindset, that identity with Marshawn and Brian and the rest of you and Russ and all of them. Could throw it still a little bit. And then you won a Super Bowl with a team that could throw it first um, with Drew and everything else. Certainly certainly could run it a little bit. Are you around that system that, that threw it first and ran it second? If you were to install your own system on the big island there, if you become the head coach of, uh, of Kona High School and you're putting in a system to be a run-first team and pound the ball – or a little more of the throw finesse first, what are you doing? You read my mind, dude. I am coaching at my alma mater, Hawaii Preparatory Academy, and I'm doing the exact thing that you just said. It's a blend of the both, both of the offenses. Wow. It's a, no. it's, uh, what am I doing? I, you know, it's, you, it's hard to have both, right? So yep. you have, we ran like the full-blown, like the wide zone offense it was what I called it. You know, it's, 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 you, you, it's hard to just dial up wide zone and, yeah. you know, gain three yards. Right. And then go and have like a vertical passing attack. It's all kind of one package, right? The offense we ran with it, uh, everything was predicated on, you know, play action pass, running the ball, um, so on and so forth. It, and so when you go down to new Orleans, it was more of, you know, the traditional pro style offense. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to have both. It's hard to do both. Right. You so what are you doing, Max? So you hang your hat on one. What are you doing? Hang your hat on one. What are we doing? I don't have a Hall of Fame quarterback uh, at my high school right now. Okay. All right. So we're running the ball. Interesting. There you go. That's a good good choice. Well, not bad uh, for an art major from Oregon uh, who who people here, uh, you have to understand, Max, all the time, people point to that trade and that moment when you left as being one of the real seminal, unfortunate moments in uh, the run that Pete and John have had here and probably one that I think they would like to do over and have you back because Mm. uh, things were never quite the same afterwards so thanks for coming on thanks for for sharing your your view on what's happening right now in lahaina and just on football in general we should do this again all right appreciate it guys hey thanks again thanks again for putting this auction on i think that uh, everybody in the state really appreciates 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 any help that uh that you guys can give so thank you again all right there you go there was uh max unger a former seahawks center who joined us yesterday on the show i really enjoyed max always loved him when he was here um he was a guy that was just you know, look, he he was. He was an art major from Oregon. I mean, that, that was sort of his persona and, and a little bit different from everybody you would meet at a, a you know, in a Seahawks or any other football locker room. I remember we used to go to that, um, to the event John Schneider would do every year to, to benefit Jack's Fund, which is his son. And, uh, and I just remember talking to Max over there. And it's just like he didn't come off like a football player. He was never too cool for school. He was always just sort of happy to sit around and chat about whatever and just always appreciated that. And I'm not surprised that he's gotten himself into coaching. I would have guessed he might get himself into personnel or something like that and kind of go down that same road as, as John Schneider or Dan Morgan or some of the other folks that have come through there. But um, not surprised that he's coaching and not surprised that he's back on the big Island enjoying life in Hawaii. And I, I really, you know, of all the things he said, and I'm going to come back here to the stuff about running the ball, cause that's going to be a big focus of the show today. But before he did, I, I just, I thought what he said there about community was really interesting that being sort of isolated in an island community, whether it's the Big Island or Maui or, or any of the Hawaiian islands or any other island for that matter, that it, it forces people to do things for each other. And I, I think it's a really nice message. It's not something I'd ever really thought about, why there's such a, a identity and a, a community element to a place like that. But I thought it was really nicely put and, and shows what kind of a, 
philosopher Max is. So, yeah, it was a mistake. You really hate the fact that they traded him. I remember going back and, and thinking about that moment, right, Max Unger essentially for Jimmy Graham. And if I remember right, the Seahawks, they were they were planning on probably cutting Max anyway. They thought he was done. They thought that he was too injured. Not that they didn't like him. They loved him, but they thought they were probably going to have to move on, that he wasn't going to be worth paying at that point, and he was a candidate to be cut. So they were pretty happy to kind of get back whatever they could, and you know he ends up being included in the Jimmy Graham deal. Unfortunately, it burned them in, in really three ways. One, you lose your first-round pick. Two, you lose Max Unger, who turns out to be not done and has a whole bunch more good years left. And three, not only do you not replace Max Unger, but Jimmy Graham comes in and just completely destroys the identity of your team. Forgetting about the fact that the guys just straight up didn't like him, and we've heard that from K.J. Wright. He just rubbed them the wrong way. More than anything, it's it's the fact that, that he just wasn't – the right fit for the identity of a team that wanted to run the ball and be physical first and foremost. And when you hire a guy to play a position that can go in one of two ways and he plays the version of the position that doesn't fit your team, unfortunately, I think it it, it sent a clear message to the wrong people that they no longer were willing to be a pound-the-ball-come-at-you physical football team. They were, in many people's view at that point, building around Russ instead of around what the team did best. And it's a huge bummer that it went down that way. Isn't it kind of fascinating that didn't – I think they they brought Harvin in the year before that, didn't they? Uh, A couple years before that, yeah. It just just seems like they made a couple of moves that um, really – with guys that they couldn't find a way to utilize best, and it's – Interesting that it didn't really seem to torpedo anything that much. Obviously, they were still very good, but... Um. See, I think the difference is, I think you can handle a Percy Harvin on your team, right? Ultimately, it didn't work, and, and his you know mental state or emotional state kind of didn't allow it to work, not to mention the various injuries he had. But he's a wide receiver. Like, you have to have wide receivers, right? And I don't need them to be one specific type in order to fit your mentality, so I thought they could always sort I, – I totally appreciate the comparison, and you're right. They were sort of two misses on first-round picks in a row that you traded. But at the end of the day, Harvin just didn't work, whereas Jimmy Graham, to me, represented something that was a shift away from the type of football they wanted to play. And unfortunately, they just never really you know, got it back. So, yeah, just a huge bummer. A couple of texts correcting us. Yes, uh, Brock screwed it up. He did not win a Super Bowl with the Saints. And yes, it is Ben's fun, not Jack's fun. Thank you for reminding me. Sorry about that. It's uh, I'm out of the studio, man. I'm down here at the Virginia Mason Athletic Center. Nothing's normal for me when I'm down here. I'm usually off my game a little bit, but worth it to talk to Pete Carroll at 9.30 this morning. All right, so let me get to that last part of it, because Brock and I are going to spend some time on this at 7.30 today, and, and that is the whole idea of a physical run first style football team. And, you know, I found myself going back and forth uh, this, this weekend with a guy on Twitter. Maybe you guys have read him. His name is NFLosophy. Do you know who that is? I think I mentioned him yesterday. So. Yeah, he's a, he, he's good. Um, he's, I think, a former PR person or something like that with the, uh, with the Bucks. So some of it is sort of Tampa Bay focused. 
but he knows the game and he knows sort of the inside of, of how the game is actually dealt with and played, not just, you know, on the field, but behind the scenes, et cetera. So I've always found him to be kind of a, an interesting follow in any event. He, he was essentially saying like, Hey, Pete Carroll was a miracle worker with Russell Wilson. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it was that he was a miracle worker. I think it's that Pete Carroll's really good at discovering what somebody's strengths are and then designing things around him that fit. I mean, I just I go back to what Pete did in that time. He had never in his career, nor had Daryl Bevel, by the way, neither of them had ever run read option before Russell Wilson. Wasn't part of their game plan. Right? Pete sure wasn't running it with Matt Barkley. He wasn't running it with uh with with Carson Palmer. He wasn't running it with Mark Sanchez. Of course not. That's not what he did. And if you go back, he sure wasn't running it with Drew Bledsoe or whoever he had with the Jets. But Russell Wilson comes in here, right? They didn't do that with Matt Hasselbeck. They didn't do that with Tavares Jackson. But Russ had a specific skill. He could run, right? And and he could run without hurting himself. And all the things that a young Russell Wilson brought to the table, he could also throw on the run very well. And he was good with play action. And guess what? Marshawn was good running the ball out of the read option set. And so they adapted. And, yeah, they ran a lot more read option than they ever had before. In fact, it was more than the zero times he had run it before then. That's being that's adapting. That's being willing to look at the personnel you have and figure out the best way to utilize them on the football field. And I think it's something Pete did very well. At his core, though, at his very, the very essence of Pete Carroll, is the idea that it is worth it to run the ball. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to only run the ball, and I think one of the things we all found out last year is that Pete is not a, 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 a such a staunch run-first kind of guy that he won't do all of the other things that were required to win in modern football. He threw the ball a lot more last year with Geno Smith. He threw, the lot more, he threw a lot more on early downs with Geno Smith. He incorporated more of the intermediate passing game that so many people wanted Russell Wilson to be a part of. Guess what? And guess why? Russell's not good at it. Geno Smith is. Pretty simple. They didn't run read option with Geno Smith. You know why? Not as good at it as Russell Wilson was. Instead, they incorporated more of that intermediate passing game, and the next thing you know, you got an offense that throws for 4,300 yards and still had nearly a 70% completion record. Why? Because they adapted. Because they looked at the people in front of them and said, how do I utilize them and put them in the right position to succeed? Anybody who's managed at work, even at home, you know what it means to try to put the people around you in the best position to succeed. You think about your kids, right, if you have them. Look, I got two kids who are very, very different from each other. They love each other. They get along great. You've heard them both on the air. One's like me and one's very sweet. Like, they, they really are completely different people. And they do different things. Avery's gotten into golf. She's into acting. She's into singing. She's into things that are more up her alley. Cecily's completely into, you know, all sorts of different things. But she's into rock climbing and things that are a little bit more physically active than Avery is. I'm trying to put them in the right position to succeed. And I think that's what Pete did so well with his quarterbacks here over the years. And I think he's continuing to do it now. Are they going to run the ball? Yes. Do you need to run the ball to win? Yes. Is it even more valuable, I think, now in a league where more teams are trying to throw it and trying to be more finesse? Yes. 
And do I think that this team will have some more success because of the physicality that they've started to build, especially on defense, but on both sides of the ball? Yes, again. It's one of the reasons I'm pretty darn excited for this Seahawks season. I think it's going to be the most physical Seahawks team we've seen in years. Come right back with Brock. We'll discuss what the heck happened last night. Do the Mariners have a brand new problem no one saw coming? It's next on Brock and Salk.